Good morning, everyone. Welcome to day 15. It is the Ides of March. Um, we are doing day 15 of the 7 a.m. Novelist March March Writing Challenge. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. And particularly for the day uh, uh, Ides of March, we're going to be talking about horror film techniques. So I find a good vibe there that I'm really excited about. Um, we're with uh, screenwriter, director, and novelist uh, Davy Snivy to um, talk about how we can use horror film techniques to make us better writers. Good morning, Davy. Good morning. Thank you so much for being with us. An award-winning screenwriter, filmmaker, modestly published fiction writer. She made me keep in those adjectives. Um, and contributor to Beyond the Bechdel, a feminist cinema blog. Davy Snively is an alumnus of AFI's Directing Workshop for Women and Fox Studios Filmmakers Lab and scholarship winner of the Nostos Screenwriting Retreat and Martha's Vineyard Institute of Creative Writing. She's a recent grad of the Grub Street Novel Incubator. We're really happy to have her. And she is currently revising her novel, and working on a collection of short stories. So, so excited to have you on. Uh, yes, as in uh, Susan's noting in the chat, fantastic topic. I'm really excited. I actually am a huge, huge horror movie fan, though I'm disappointed in about 99.9% .9 of them, sadly. <laughs> uh, but I still hold on to the fact that it might, might be good. So you've had a great career in film, Davey. Um, tell us, and now you've moved, you're moving more into the narrative forms of short story and, and novels. So how, what are these t horror techniques that can make us better writers? Well, you know, it, it's really interesting because horror is such a um, polarizing topic. It's a very like, you know, maligned for the reasons that, that you mentioned. And yet people have been hunting them out forever and they will always be really, really enthusiastic audiences for them. So I actually used to teach a college course in horror films and really studying them and looking at how they've had this relationship uh, kind of a symbiotic relationship with audiences over time. They reflect societal fears at the time and changes. Um, so I, I thought, you know, let's dive in and, and look at some of the particular techniques. And um, I actually, though, before I start, uh, well, I'll say the first one is title, Climax First, Foreplay Later. <laughs> I will reference first a, a comedy film, although it has some horrific moments for sure, that I think brings up a, a really great uh, analogy for that. Um, if anyone's seen the movie Something About, There's Something About Mary, early on, this guy's going on this big date and his buddy gives him this advice, which is pleasure yourself before the date so that when, when you know the time comes later to get it on with your lady friend, you know, you'll have endurance, you'll be able to, to perform better. And um, it doesn't go so well for the guy in the movie, but it works really, really well in horror films. And I thought to demonstrate this, I um, would talk about the opening scenes of a couple um, well-known and one lesser well-known horror film. Right. Because that really, it, it, it's interesting to see what they accomplish. So Halloween, I'm sure everyone, even if they haven't seen it, the original it, is familiar with the basic concept. You know, definitely not a literary uh, masterwork here, but um, <laughs> it starts with a young boy who's spying on his teenage sister who is having sex with her boyfriend on Halloween night. And then the little boy viciously stabs her to death. End scene. Another movie, Jaws, a woman is skinny dipping in the ocean and she gets brutally attacked and killed by a shark. 
And perhaps my all-time favorite horror film opening ever is a Japanese horror film called Suicide Club. Excellent, excellent film. I don't think you'd be disappointed, although maybe just really weirded out. Um, we're at a busy Tokyo subway station. And there's this long, long line of smiling girl, uh, teenage girls in their school uniforms. On the platform, they clasp hands, count to three, and jump in front of a speeding subway and a bloodbath, literally a bloodbath ensues. Everything's spread. So what is effective about these openings? What's I say for starters, probably one of the most important things, and we should all consider this as writers, is they establish the tone and the genre from the get-go. These right. are dark, dark horror films, right? And I think that's really important because it grounds the audience or the reader, um, helping them know what to expect. Also, readers, you know, they don't want to be disoriented at the beginning, they want to feel competent. Nobody likes to go someone, somewhere and feel like the total outsider, like everyone is in on the joke and they're not. You are in on the joke or no joke in, in, in you know, bloody um, subway stations, but you get the point. Um, we also, though, we know right up front the main conflict, the main kind of conflict that we're going to be seeing that's going to be driving the momentum. So in this case, threats, you know, various threats of death, people are going to die. So that, that's a pretty major conflict. It doesn't have to be death. It doesn't have to be horror. But the idea of right away or like, oh, we know what kind of problems it's going to be, even if it's not a specific to your protagonist problem, just like there is some kind of main sort of conflict, obstacle, antagonist that we're going to be dealing with. Yeah. Um, and uh, finally, one last thing, it uh raises a really really compelling question from the get-go we are hooked it's like wow i you gotta wonder what goes goes on next after that what do you do after all these girls have just jumped into the subway i mean that's there's so many questions why did they do it are more people going to do it you know there are all these things so you've let the audience in and you've given yourself a major major um bonus because now the audience you've earned their trust now you have some time. And if you think about it, if you look at slasher films, there's that kill at the beginning, but there's usually not any more kills until like the end of the second act or at least the middle. Yeah. What happens next is you have time to do what we all need to do at the beginning of our story, to introduce the protagonist, to really set things up. And sometimes in novels, I'm sure people have read these reviews or had this experience themselves. You're like, wow, that was a great book once it finally got started on page 50 or 70. But too often, and sometimes you do have a lot of stuff that you have to set up for it to make sense. But that's why going back to, you know, there's something about Mary. It's like, look, you just satisfied them. They're kicking back with their cigarette in the afterglow of that first climax. Now you have a little bit of time. And I think that can be really valuable. If you're doing character-driven stories, which a lot of literary are, um, you might want the opening to involve your protagonist. But even that doesn't have to happen because if you have something at the beginning and then you go to your protagonist's story, you're like, how are these two things going to line up? Mm -hmm. So I think it could be a really great way to start your story. Would you do that? Yeah, I mean, I think normally a lot of people think of that as kind of like a prologue. Um, you're in a different point of view. You might be in a different setting. The tone might be a little bit different. And I, I do think there's a lot of talk about whether prologues are, 
are good or not. I personally rather love them. Um, creating that that distance between what's in the prologue and the beginning of the book that that brings the question: How do these things? How do these things belong together? How is our protagonist going to be involved with these these young girls that have just uh, killed themselves? Yeah, right. And and that's the thing: if somebody does have an aversion to prologues, you know, you can always call it chapter one, and it doesn't necessarily have to be from a different POV. Or like I said, it could involve the protagonist. But thinking in terms of you know, showing some of your cards right away at the beginning, as opposed to saving all the bigger reveals for later, mm-hmm. I think can be a really good way to go. I mean, it's interesting. So in the chat, people are asking, you know, is this the inciting incident? Is this, it, it, it could be the inciting incident. It could also be the climax. We're actually having a forecasted climax that we're going to go back to. Um, because, but Somehow it's it's it, if you you've talked about inciting incidents too. Do you consider it the inciting incident? Because if it's about someone else and not your protagonist, I think um, I had mentioned actually when I was on last time that uh, I had taken a class at Greb with Lori Goldstein, and she was the one that introduced to me the idea that you can have two inciting incidents. That one happens right away, and one. So I think the one that happens at you know the turning point that the the one that is the catalyst of the story. That one I feel like has to involve your um, protagonist. I feel like it, it needs to be driven by your protagonist. It needs to be very much ingrained in the rest of the story because of actions and decisions that have been made. That way it doesn't just happen to somebody. But in this one, it could be something that just happens to somebody. You know, you could get the news that, um, you know, your boyfriend could break up with you or or you could find out a beloved pet died or or it, it could be, but something that has major, or you could watch, you know, something horrible happen. Um, but something that is going to be like, why did we start this movie or this book today? Why did we start here? Um, and it might be involved in the character or not, but there's something in the world of the story that is changed by an impact and the story will be driven in some way by this little climax. Yes. So the world of the story has been upset. And basically what you're doing with something like that in horror movies, they run on series. It seems like, you know, so-and-so is killed and the next person's killed and, and they escalate. So you're also setting up a series that we expect to be followed um, and answered to in the end that will eventually involve the protagonist. So it's doing, it's doing a whole lot of work. Um, yes. Amazing. Okay. Great. Excellent. Shall we jump into number two? All right. Predictability breeds unpredictability. Now, again, we were talking about horror films and how, you know, they can be very cliche. They can be, oh, you know what's coming. But sometimes um, they do a really good job with that. So we usually think of surprises being born of unpredictability. But in fact, in horror, it's more often than not the other way around. Going back to Halloween is a great example, I think. What's predictable is we know that a lot of people are going to be killed by Michael. We even know more or less who's going to be killed because he has an MO. He goes after horny teenagers and anyone who tries to stop him from killing horny teenagers. Yeah. But the unpredictable lies in the fact that we do not know when or how exactly um, he's going to strike. And yeah. that therein lies the suspense because um this does a lot of work for the writer yeah. and for the audience because it allows you to have red herrings i mean in a horror film 
you set the stage, you plant the idea of these things are going to happen. We know they're going to happen. And then suddenly a phone rings or a dog barks or a car horns and the whole audience is like, ah, and you can do that in writing too. I mean, obviously not with the sound effects, but you can, you know, <laughs> raise these alerts, but also you can put your characters in situations and that are completely mundane that are important to the story, but your audience, they're charged. They're ready. They're expecting things to happen. So there's suspense, even though the person's just gone to the bathroom, you know, um, there's this constant thing already there. So, again, right. Yeah. Because because suspense relies on giving the reader or the viewer something to be suspenseful about, because I think a lot of writers withhold and they use surprise instead. So they, they don't give us anything to base our suspense on. They don't give us anything to ask questions about it. I usually always use the example of. A woman arrives at the airport, she gets in the cab, she goes uh, in the cab, she's riding through the city for 30 minutes, and then the cab explodes. So that's that's surprise. That's not suspenseful. That's not even interesting. But if we know the woman arrives at the airport and we know that there's a bomb in the cab or there's something wrong with the cab, we're sitting through those whole 30 minutes. So we've, you've given us something predictable, and then we're waiting for the unpredictable when is exactly. it going to explode? Is she going to be okay? Is she going to be able to get out of this? Yes. So you need something predictable on which to base the suspense and the unpredictable. I love that. Perfect. Yeah. I, I think it works really well. And yeah, I mean, think about the movie speed. If we didn't know the rules that, you know, the, the bus has to be at a certain speed or else, you know, all goes crazy. It, it, there would, it wouldn't be a movie. There would be no story. One of my favorite examples is from a horror comedy called Severance and a bunch of coworkers are off at some like trust team building sort of retreat in this really decrepit, awful lodge in the middle of nowhere, of course. And you've got a woman at, in the bathroom brushing her teeth, unbeknownst to her, creeping on the floor behind her. It's like the biggest spider the size of your head you've ever seen. And she's just oblivious, la, 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 brushing your teeth and it's getting closer and closer. And then it crawls up her pajama leg. She completely doesn't know. It keeps going. It's in the middle of her back. She spits the thing in, walks out, goes down the hall. You're sitting here just at the edge of your seat. And she's just about to turn into her bedroom when she stops. And you're like, uh-oh, here it is. And she looks over her shoulder and she sees it and she wipes it off. <laughs> knocks on the floor and goes into your room. And it's so great because we thought this was the most predictable thing that was ever going to happen in our own, you know, stereotypes of a woman in this situation. But any person with a giant spider, I don't think it's even necessarily gender um, exclusive in these uh, ideas, but we had the stereotype. They were playing on our ideas and then boom. So it was predictable until it wasn't predictable. And the two need to go hand in hand. And allows for a moment of comedy, which I think horror films do some of the best comedy that that we'll find. Yes. They do. And that would be great, though, in a non-horror where, you know, you could have a massive tragedy or, or drama and still have some a nice little moment of levity by, oh, no, this is it. We're going to happen. Oh, you know, there's grandmother's chair and she's always sitting in her chair. She's always there in that moment. She's and the chair is empty. And you think, oh, no. And then you hear the 
toilet flush and she comes out waving the air or something. And it's like, oh, we just, we were expecting her death. This is the moment. And now it's not the moment. So there's definitely ways that you can make the predictable unpredictable too. And someone in the chat is asking, well, how do you do this in first person point of view? So, so first off, I, I think, um, question if first person point of view is is serving you the best but remember too that even in first person point of view you as the author need to provide signals of the world that exists without the first outside the first person's point of view's skewed perception of the world and so that is going to rely on signals from the setting things that other characters say to the main character. I think that is actually the most important and even, even using other points of views in, in books or narratives. So, so in this particular case, you might have people warning um, like, you know, oh, this cabin is full of, of creepers or, oh, I saw this last time um, or, oh, Mandy, claims that she doesn't mind bugs um and then and then it sets up a sort of expectation something that we think that we can predict and then we watch it um play out so you can still do it in first person narrative and i'd use the voices of the other characters to help you do that i think too like in the in the spider example if somebody were in a position where they couldn't warn the other person and they're seeing this going on and there's some kind of stakes like the person has a heart condition for example and oh my gosh, the spider is on the back and oh my gosh, she's going to have a heart. Oh, and I can't do anything because I'm, you know, whatever, um, watching from a video or I don't know, just all these sorts of things and you're screaming and screaming and then, and then they're expecting it. And then haha, grandma just knocked it off her back. So you could do it from another POV and have it just be as an observation of, of a, a disaster about to happen that didn't happen or yeah. didn't have the outcome. Excellent. Cool. Shall we move on to number three? Yes. All right, horror films, and this is not exclusive to horror films for sure, but horror films have no choice but to do this, or they wind up being the kind of movies that you're talking about. And that is that horror films present very good reasons to make very poor decisions. <laughs> so, um, yes, in the cheesy horror films, we always see, you know, partying kids going to the creepy haunted cursed house and having sex in the middle of the night you know at the worst possible time where everyone was killed or when they are finally being pursued by the psycho killer what do they do they they go down and hide in the murdery basement um however uh the good horror films they do the exact same thing really but they give those characters a good reason for having sex in the cemetery or or going down in the basement and the best example i've seen of this is one of the most chilling another horror comedy actually because that's what i do so i watch a lot of this but um uh it's emergency a movie that came out last year and uh if i were going to describe it i would probably say it's the hate you give meets weekend at bernie's for anyone old enough to remember that goofy film yeah. but um it, it, it's in it three college roommates, um, all males of color, come back to their campus housing to find an inebriated, passed out, underaged white chick in a vomit and a pool of her own vomit. Problem. Now what do you do? <laughs> well, you, you'd think you'd call 911, except your guy's the color. How are you going to explain this? Who's going to believe you? And what you've just been partying too. You've got weed and, and, and alcohol in your system. 
this is not going to work out well, but this girl is passed out. She is in bad, bad shape. She could die. There is not a good choice to be made. And that is the whole movie of what do you do? And this is such a good um, way to involve, and this is why horror is a very um, audience participation kind of film. It's one of the few audiences where, you know, they're going to be yelling at the screen, don't go in the basement. No, do go in the basement. Do that. Don't do that. It's very, and we want that um, in our books because you yeah. want the audience involved and you've just given them a moral dilemma. What would you do in that situation? So not only do you want to know what is going to happen, to these characters, what choices are they going to make? But you're invested because you're like, what, what would happen? What would my choice be? And it's not going to be just while you're reading that book or watching that movie. I think about that movie all the time because I'm like, okay, I know what happens in the movie. And it is a horror comedy. So, which is funny because it is really a buddy film. It is very, most everything that happens in it until what you're expecting. So the expected and the unexpected, again, are working really well. I have never been more tense because I'm like, this cannot end well. There is not a good scenario. How are they going to do this? So I'm involved in that level. But then every step of the way, they're making choices. And I'm just like, oh, man, no, you should have. Oh, no. So um, I think it's a very, very good tool. And we do see it in um, literature, for sure. Sophie's Choice is, you know, probably the classic example of there isn't a good choice. But that makes suddenly a what could be an otherwise cheesy scenario really, really powerful. Oh, I, I love that. I never really I never really thought how horror movies are so participatory, but that's why also I think people get addicted to them and they find kind of catharsis through them. And you are searching for that kind of similar fear of what would I do in a novel? You have that decision point. The biggest decision point in a novel is usually the crisis moment before the climax when the decision has been made, but you have multiple decision points throughout that we should be worried about because there's stakes on either side of it. Yeah. And we are involved in the character because we are the character. Exactly. So um, that's a fun one. Uh, I know we're, I, we're on a schedule, so I run and I still have two more. Yes. Okay. Horror films are not afraid to get naked. <laughs> now, uh, this is silly, but actually think about the most iconic scene of any horror film ever is probably the shower scene and Psycho. And yes, the montage of shots is you know, masterful and the screaming violins are really, really powerful, but that's not why we relate to it. Who has seen that movie and not been in the shower and thought, wow, I am naked, I am alone, I am defenseless, I am completely vulnerable. Yeah. Nudity I, and the most common nightmare, the most common universal nightmare are people out in public thinking, oh my gosh, I forgot to put my clothes on. Everyone's had that dream at some point. So it plays on some of our most universal fears um, beyond death is shame. I mean, public speaking is at the head of, you know, death usually in, in fears because it's more commonplace. But um, so horror films get a lot of, you know, uh, I just lost the word and it's a really easy word, but whatever, they get a lot of, um, criticism for uh, all the nudity. And granted, they do have a lot of gratuitous nudity. It's almost always sexual or, you know, objectifying women in the shower or whatever. Um, yes. But 
the fact of the matter is it really heightens things. It works and you don't have to put it. There are a lot of contexts where a person could be naked, either alone or in among other people where they're feeling really, really vulnerable. And what's so nice about that is um, in writing, I think more so than in film, you're inside the character's head. So this yeah. gives you a chance to really let them know how they relate to their body, how they relate to other people reacting to their body. It just adds a level of vulnerability. So no matter what a scene is, if you think about it, and if you're creative, and of course you have to be to be um, a novelist, um, there are any number of situations that might be heightened by simply having uh, some form of nudity, even if it's like by accident. What if, you know, I'm thinking the Seinfeld episode where Elaine has a nipple showing in her Christmas card, but <laughs> you know, there's um, times where, where nudity is, I'm sorry, my dog is being taken to the bath and I'm putting up a fight here. Um, but uh, so uh, I think that's something to think about. If you have a scene, you're like, wow, I want my readers to really connect on a, a more personal level with their vulnerability, how could I place this in a situation that would make her extra vulnerable so we can really relate? Yeah, wonderful. And, and just so nakedness being the ultimate vulnerability, I'm also a fan of naked and afraid for that same reason, um, but also any sort of vulnerability, like you are, allow your characters to be vulnerable. And I even oftentimes talk about brokenness because that is what's gonna allow us to relate to anyone, even if they are um, completely different from us in, in many, many ways. And I've, I've related this too. I once had a, um, a very petite Filipino American student uh, female at Brandeis. And I asked her once which character she related to most in literature. And she said, Frankenstein. <laughs> um, and that, and so completely different physically and everything, but there was something about his vulnerability, his sense of being a stranger in the world um, and not fitting in and always searching for love that she related to. So any sort of vulnerability and, and um, brokenness, but nakedness, I think is, is that perfect kind of stand in. And so that works, works perfectly. Yes. Funny you mentioned Frankenstein too, because my last point was um, that the monster is not always the monster. And I think Frankenstein is a great example of that because the creature is, you know, a victim of circumstances, but it's the creator, it's reckless science. And I love that in her, there are these two levels where, you know, you've got, um, in George Romero zombie films too. The zombies are really kind of a subplot. More often than not, the real trouble is people's inability to cooperate or in Dawn of the Dead, it's, you know, hyper-consumerism and capitalism, corporate greed. I think in the next one, it, it, it's science. Again, um, a common one. We've been seeing Me Too ones. They're great. Barbarian, which came out last year's one. Another really, I thought it was a quite effective horror film that had a whole Me Too thing. So the, the monster, there were, there were a couple, and frankly, one might argue that the one that is painted and looks like the monster isn't nearly as monstrous as some of the other characters in the film. A Promising Young Woman is another example. So um, I think we see that a lot in horror, and we can do that in non-horror. Um, you know, an overprotective mother that seems like really, really awful towards her child might actually not be the monster. It might be a society that allows gun violence that killed the rest of her family, and this is all she has left. Or, you know, there are ways that you can have 
antagonists that seem like monsters, but they actually represent. And that you know goes into subtext, obviously. But I think it's a really powerful thing to think about when we're looking at our antagonists, thinking of them as the monster that some part of society has created. Yeah, and even um, I oftentimes think about gothic fiction, which I'm also a fan of. Usually the monster is a repressed version of the protagonist, and it's been so repressed that it's been um, you know, forced out, out of the protagonist personality, like, um, Jekyll and Hyde, um, and the protagonist actually has to deal with this dark double self, um, that they have, um, repressed, and they've created it, though, they've, they've created the monster, and so they are responsible for it, almost like their own child, Frankenstein is the same thing, um, so thinking about that, and thinking about the the double for your character the darkness inside your character the repressed part of your character darkness might not be the best word to use but um so thinking about that um one question that we are getting from the chat what do you think of Stephen King I think he has great story ideas I I like a lot I haven't been keeping up I had a roommate in college who um I didn't like horror back then it scared the crap out of me um but she would tell me the plots and I love them until I read his stuff. I don't like his writing style. It's not for me. Um, I think he's he breaks the fourth wall too much. I think he's a little kind of proud of himself. I don't know. And I don't like his female characters. I know there are some, but the ones that I've read, I'm just like, this is a boomer. I'm like boomer guy all over the place. I, I have some issues with him, but I think his stories are masterful. And um, that's why like, I love the movie, Carrie. Um, I think though that you have to in horror, and I think in general with your antagonist, you really have to kind of love them and make them full-blooded. I mean, full three-dimensional morning, but um, I don't usually talk in the morning. I just usually write. So this is like, yep, new, yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And so I think in that way, I mean, horror is really making a lot of um, headways in terms of feminism, in terms of of people of color in terms of really reflecting their experience in a way um, that they themselves can enjoy as audiences and then also um, the other audiences can enjoy as well. So um, I think it's really important and really moving forward and we'll probably move our fiction forward in that way too because they're doing things and taking risks that publishers aren't always quite ready for. Um, okay, we're going to have to go. Uh, you can find our full March writing challenge schedule on our Substack page, 7amnovelist.substack.com. Uh, Subscribe there for updates or take part in the discussion. You can also find the podcast version of these webinars on your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so that other people can find us. So, Davey, are you going to be able to get any writing done today? I am ready to go. I've got my actual writing. This is my other computer. This is my writing computer. I'm on my desk. This is my futon desk. And I have my, yes, I can't wait. And now I'm even more revved up because uh, I get to do some horror. <laughs> yes, here we go. Okay, everyone, let's get your writing done. Have a great day. Thank you.